listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. How lucky can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me Like the fella once said Ain't that a kick in the head Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina and Ronan, Montana uh, This is the Bellator Christie Podcast And talking about being lucky We're not talking about uh, what necessarily uh, Dean Martin was talking about In his uh, classic song, Ain't That a Kick in the Head But we are lucky in the fact that we're talking about a Savior who loves us So we're coming uh, from Acts chapter 10 And in the message of Peter he said God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil For God was with him And we are witnesses of all that he did Both in this country of the Jews and in Jerusalem they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not only to the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as a witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God, and welcome to our Winter Theology Series. And at this time, we're going to turn it over to Curtis Evelo. Well, hello, everyone. Well, ain't that just a kick in the head? <laughs> But anyway, I hope you uh, caught the 300th episode, which was last week, and uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. And it's it's always uh, interesting to to hear the the backstory of how long it uh, how long this this podcast has been around and what's gone on on it. Just thankful for Brian and his and his consistency and his drive to keep this podcast up and going over that that long a time. That's that's a big milestone. And uh, I just pray that it continues on. We get many more out of this. Uh, we just, uh, I, I ask that you guys uh, take that in. But also, this week, we're starting a, uh, a, pretty, a, a pretty important uh, podcast, a pretty important series, which is, it's called Christology. And that's, and that, uh, that's something that, that I think um, the church really needs to hear. And that's why we put this together, so we could have... Um, something as a baseline for people to kind of bounce off of and research from. Um, so let's just go ahead and, and get on with it. Um, Brian, you want to go ahead and uh, kind of maybe give us a idea of what Christology is? Because this is our, this is our episode or uh, episode five um, of our, of our series season now of our season. And, this this uh, Christology is actually part of a series that we're going to put together, the winter series. And I, I don't really know how many this is really going to go out, but I'm pretty sure it's going to go for a long time. Um, but we'll package it all into a place for people to find on on the website, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that might be something we need to look at doing, e even with the, the uh, podcast we had previously 
on the uh, first season of our, of our – I don't even know if we did it in the winter time, but we did a series. I think it was in the winter or spring of last season that we uh, were talking about the attributes of God, basically theology mm-hmm. proper, you might call it. Right. So that would be considered right. the first season of uh, of our winter theolo- theology series. And so, uh, yeah, this would be the second season. So there are several different avenues we can go down as we talk about these different issues. Yeah. Yeah. So Christology, what what is it? What are we talking about here? So Let's kind of dive into that first. Sure. So like theology is a breakdown of two Greek words, logos or logia, meaning the reason of, and uh, theos meaning God. So that would mean the study of God. So Christology means the same thing, the, not the study of God, but the study of Christ, uh, Christ and then logos, the study of the Messiah. In Christology is among one of the most important aspects of theology in in general. Because if we don't understand who Christ is, if we get that wrong, then there's a trickle-down effect that this will impact our view of humanity. It'll impact our view of of soteriology, that is, uh, the, the, the study of salvation, and so many different aspects. And in fact, is we've got a list of heresies that came out even from earliest times where they misunderstood the nature and person of Jesus. And so this led to a lot of different problems. But here's one of the interesting things I found by Paul Barnett. He wrote a book called The Birth of Christianity, The Early Years, and he says on page 26, he said, It may be asked why the subject of Christology is raised so soon in this, a professed work of history. So he's looking at this from the aspect of history. He says the answer is clear. It was Christology that gave birth to Christianity, not the reverse. Furthermore, Christ gave birth to Christology, the chronology drives us to this conclusion. So if you look at this, we see that Christology came from Jesus' self-understanding of himself and of the mission that God has given him. So from Christ developed this Christology, and from this Christology developed what we know today as Christianity. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, that's some big stuff. There. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess, um, you know... We could say, I guess, then we could go into the first question: What do we mean? What do we mean when we say that Christ is divine, and and why would it be important to hold to a high Christology because of that divine nature? So, when we say yeah, to answer the first part, so when we say that Christ is divine, we are saying that He is more than just a human being; that mm-hmm. He is God come in flesh. He, he is, um, well, as we're going to talk about later in the podcast, uh, there was a word established for, for the orthodox position of, of, uh, of Christianity, and that is, or Christ's nature, and it's homoousios, homo meaning same, ousios meaning essence, that he is the same essence of God, but come in flesh. And so mentioning Christ, high Christology, high Christology looks at the divine nature of Jesus. Low Christology focuses more on his humanity uh, without the divine aspect. But a high Christology is important because Richard Bauckham even mentioned in one of his books that the earliest Christology was the highest Christology. The highest Christology was the earliest Christology. And as we talk about heresies, it's going to be interesting to find that the the first heresies 
actually had nothing to do with Christ's divine nature. It was actually a misunderstanding of his humanity uh, that led to some of those uh, first yeah. heresies. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so when we're saying high Christology, when you're talking high and low Christology, can you kind of dive into that just a little bit more so we can kind of have a little a little bit more um, knowledge as we go th- into this series, so we're kind of setting setting the groundwork here. Sure. So, so, so again, high Christology is t- focusing on the divine nature of Jesus. Now, we we don't want our Christology to be so high that we don't have the human nature of Jesus, right? Because Jesus was God and He was a human being. Uh, but low Christology, this is found more in like the Jesus Seminar and uh, even s- some of the works of uh, Rudolf. Bootman, uh, who believed that we needed to demythologize the New Testament of all the miracles because scientific people wouldn't couldn't believe in such things, he said, uh, or at least so he th- so he held. Uh, but uh, th- there comes a point when you hold a low Christology that you look at the humanity of Jesus without the divine aspect. And that's just as, as problematic. So high Christology is looking at the divine aspect of Jesus. Uh, low Christology would be just to see Jesus as a mere human being. Uh, that's, that's kind of, we're focusing more on the humanity. That's what is meant by those two terms. Mm. You know, it's kind of funny. Solomon was so right in, in when he wrote the book of Solomon. He's like, vanity, vanity, nothing's new under the sun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Isn't that amazing? Because... Yeah. We're seeing some of this stuff that you just talked about, low Christology, high Christology. You know, you're, you've seen some of this kind of even come to the surface nowadays. I mean, uh, it, it's just coming in different ways, like um, progressive Christianity, taking taking the divine nature of God and getting rid of him, of Jesus, and getting rid of it and making him more human and making him more like us and uh, making him a, a, a repentant sinner, you know, like the like the uh, uh, TikTok video we we debunked a while back you know yeah um it's just it just seems to be the same thing it's just nothing new well as we go through these different uh these different heresies later in the podcast you're going to see this represented in, in some of the uh some of the um aspects of some of the different theologies today uh like you said there's nothing new under the sun and in fact some religious movements that would be considered heretical by um conservative theological circles uh merely adopted ancient heresies into their their current paradigm and that's that's basically what they did mm. yeah always keeps creeping in huh oh absolutely it's like, yeah it's kind of like Kind of like the the mud that just keeps creeping in under the door, you know. You just <laughs> can't get rid of it. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, like those morning glories we mentioned last week. <laughs> oh man, them suckers! Yeah, uh, I was trying to think of another vine type thing that we have around here, but yeah. <laughs> so, uh, does the Old Testament give any hints to the divine nature of the Messiah? Yeah, it does. I mean, and like we had mentioned on our, our December uh, series, the uh, uh, there are more literal, there are more literal, um, more literal uh, messianic prophecies, and then there are more typologies. Mm-hmm. There are probably more typological shadows of of the divine nature 
of Jesus than, than there is uh, necessarily explicit. But there are some things that we could point to to say that uh, that, that the Messiah was was divine or that there is this, this uh, human manifestation or human-like manifestation of, of God. And one, one thing is to look at not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, think of the interactions that Moses had with the angel of the Lord in different occasions, uh, even when uh, God was warning Abraham of the destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the angel of the Lord uh, met with uh, met with Abraham, and, and, and there's that divine aspect there uh, that Abraham admitted uh, or, or confessed during that time. Another instance is found in Exodus chapter 3, and this is the uh, burning bush. And uh, in verse 2, it says, the, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. There wasn't anything impressive necessarily about a burning bush. I mean, I mean, it's not something you see every day. But the thing that was impressive is what he saw in the bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. But So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, and he says, Here I am. And he says, Do not come closer. Remove your sandals, for, for you're standing on holy ground. And um, so, so he sees this image of, a, of, a, of an entity in the burning bush. and It's kind of a human-like entity because he calls it the angel of the Lord. But, he, but later on, if you follow the story, uh, the person in the bush says uh, that he is uh, Yahweh, uh, or he basically says, I am who I am. And so he says, to tell the Israelites, the I am has sent me to you, um, or the Yah. Uh, Yahweh would be the, the the divine name of God, the Yah, which means I am what I am. The Yah uh, would mean uh, the I am sent you. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, there's yeah, a third. Oh, go ahead. Even, I was just gonna say that the 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 imagery there of being in there, and then the imagery in Daniel when when Nebuchadnezzar sees, you know, like like the son of like the son of God. In, in the fire. And that's exactly where I was going. Um, that was the next passage of Scripture because Daniel talks about these different entities being like a leopard, being like a, a bear, these representing nations. And um, then he says in verse 13 that I was watching in the night vision and suddenly saw one like a, like a son of man, the bar Enosh, one like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. Now, some people would have argued that this is talking about the nation of Israel, but that makes no sense. This the Son of Man was given a, a, a dominion and a kingdom. Uh, it, he wasn't already a kingdom. He was given a kingdom. So he, he may be representative of a people, but he's given a kingdom. So this, this isn't a, a nation. This is talking about an individual uh, that's being discussed and uh, one that is very, one is that is divine, but is uh, cast into a human like image a human-like figure mm. mm-hmm. hmm. 
And it is very interesting that Jesus makes mention more than any other title. He calls himself the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's if there if you can even kind of go back um, to when Abraham uh, was was um, giving um, tithes uh, to Melchizedek. Yeah, that that may be. You know, I, I don't king, know that you can king priest. You know yeah. of of. Jerusalem. You you could, uh, but that would probably be more likely the role that he played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, but if you're looking for the divine aspect, sure. you, you need to have that close association, that close affinity with Yahweh in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. But I do mm-hmm. think that there is something there in his interaction with Melchizedek. But it's probably speaking more to. Um, to say like a position uh, of a what position. The, uh, yeah. a position that the Messiah would hold that he would be a priest king because that motif is picked up in the New Testament in several several right. areas right yeah, yeah we also, won't go <laughs> oh yeah dig into that one too far <laughs> <laughs> well and even Psalm 110 Psalm 110 is also also often mentioned and it says the Lord said to my Lord uh, one Lord is talking about um, a, a a person in authority, but the other one, the Lord, in all caps, is talking to the Yahweh. So it's an individual talking to God in a very personal fashion. So some people would even argue that that might even be a hint or an indicator of the divine nature of Messiah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it's it's incredible because you know as. Uh, as Jesus was growing up as a as a as a young Jewish boy, he would have read these scriptures, and and what would have poked out in his mind, or what would have stood out in his mind as he was reading these things, you know, obviously, you know, things stood out because he he recognized purpose, place, all of those things, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely. So. So what evidence do we have that Jesus believed himself to be divine? Leading that <laughs> question. This is very important because this is talking about the self-understanding of Jesus. Who did Jesus believe himself to be? Now, before I go into these things, well, actually, I'll tell you what. Let, let me wait and do um, do what I was going to talk about um, here in just a minute. Okay, uh, let me write a little note here so I don't forget. Okay, so what did Jesus say about himself? We don't have time to go through all of these scripture passages, <laughs> but uh, there's a bunch we can talk about. So, in Matthew thirteen forty one, Jesus uh, says that he will send his angels. Well, who owns the angels? Well, obviously, the angels are under the authority of God. Uh, so he says he's going to send his angels, uh, the angels of God. So this is uh, Matthew thirteen forty one. Uh, also, the angels of God are under his authority, Luke 12, verses 8 and 9, and also chapter 15, verse 10. Uh, he proclaims himself to be an instrument to bring the kingdom of God to earth, uh, and, and already had done so and would, would do so in the end. This is Matthew 12, 28. Also, Matthew chapter 19, verse 24, uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, and also Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. All of those areas is where Jesus is talking about uh, bringing the kingdom of God. Now, who can forgive sins? Well, obviously, only God can forgive sins. Yet, in Mark 2, 5, Jesus 
proclaims that he has the authority to forgive sins, and he even performs a miracle to verify the truth of his claim. Uh, right. So that's Mark 2, 5. He claims to judge the world, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. He claims to be the Lord of Sabbath. Now, Lord, uh, the Lord uh, Sabaoth. This is a, this is a very important name here too. I need to pause here because to understand the significance of the Lord of the Sabbath, we need to go back to Exodus chapter twenty and one of the Ten Commandments. Right, verse eight says, "Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy." Verse nine, "You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day, verse ten, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God." It's a Sabbath to who? It's to the Lord, the Yahweh, your Adonai, your God, your Elohim. Mm-hmm. So, so to the Lord, your God. Now, Jesus is claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath in mm-hmm. Mark chapter two, verses twenty-seven through twenty-eight. This is. <laughs> A major claim to divinity because he obviously knew the Ten Commandments. Uh, He obviously knew this commandment uh, was to, to, that the Sabbath day was the Lord's day. It belonged to the Lord, yet he himself is claiming to be the Lord over the Sabaoth or the Sabbath. Uh, He talks about the relationship with the Father in John 10, uh, 30. He claims to be preexistent in John 14, verses 7 through 9, also in John 8, 58. There's also possible allusions to the divine name of God in the the seven I am statements in John's gospel. I know there's been a little debate about that now, but I personally believe that there's something to it. Um, So all of this together indicates that Jesus believed himself to be divine. So now, looking at this from a philosophical apologetic means, what does this say about Jesus? Well, it could say one of four things. Either Jesus was, if this is not true, what he said, then Jesus would have been a highly narcissistic person who would have elevated himself to the the place of worship. Um, But... Looking at the character of Jesus, narcissistic people are going to be individuals who seek attention, who are always going to want to be have the fame and fortune, who are always going to want to be in power and authority, but that's not what Jesus did. There were people who tried to place him in authority, yet right. he did not want to be placed in authority. Uh, and even when he did works... He said, these works are not my own because I can do nothing of myself. The works I do are from the Father. He didn't take the praise. He gave it over to the Father. Uh, And he even says to us, I am divine, you are the branches. Uh, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, he also identifies himself with the Father and saying that he himself could not do anything without the Father. So the Father's flowing through him, and through him, uh, the, the, the Spirit is flowing to individuals. So obviously, he does not show the aspect of being a, a narcissistic liar. Well, he maybe if he's a not, not a narcissistic liar, maybe he's a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis said. Maybe right. he's off his rocker. Uh, maybe he just doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe he's on the level, as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, to the level and degree of a person who thinks himself to be a poached egg or something like that. Well, but Jesus does not show any mental, in, mental instability 
in his interactions with people. There's nothing uh, that stands out. I mean, because he knows the rabbinic tradition. He knows oral tradition. He knows the philosophical arguments and, and philosophical beliefs uh, of, of, even, of uh, even pulling out uh, philosophical arguments. He was a man in his right mind all the way through. Some people would say, well, maybe this is just legendary material, but the existence of pre-New Testament creeds uh, and, and the high Christology we mentioned, among other indicators, suggest that this information came from the voice of Jesus himself. So the early church was, was uh, uh, presenting, preserving, and protecting the message that Jesus himself had given them. So if he's not a liar, a narcissistic liar, if he's not a lunatic, if this is not legendary material, then that leaves us with one option. He must have been telling the truth, and that means he's the Lord. And here's another important thing. If the resurrection is true, and we have good, ample evidence to suggest that it is, then that verifies everything that Jesus said and did. You'd be crazy to say if you're the President of the United States unless you actually hold the title. You'd be crazy to say if you're God unless you actually are. And Jesus was telling the truth in what he said. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the other thing is when you were talking about the Ten Commandments, the Lord of the Sabbath, he also knew the First Commandment. You know, yeah, which is which is you shall have no other gods before me. Mm-hmm. So he he was stating, he was stating, look, I, I am the one you are to be worshiping. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful combination there, uh, or or a link there, Curtis. You're right, because if he's pulling out one commandment. Which obviously everybody knew what he's talking about, that commandment. Right. He's obviously talking about the other commandments as well, or he's referencing that as well. So that's a wonderful link that I hadn't I hadn't considered. But you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy when you start thinking about it, all the things that he said in there and C. S. Lewis is right. He's either a, a liar, lunatic, or he's Lord. <laughs> and and some people and, have added the legendary part, but 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 there's no there's no reason to hold that. I mean, because we're talking about early material. Um, some people are even dating. I believe Matthew came before Mark, but you know the general consensus is that Mark came first. Okay, well and good. If you hold that Mark comes first, well and good. Even still, there's good evidence to suggest Matthew, right. Mark, and Luke were all three written before seventy A.D. or actually before sixty four A.D. Uh, I I believe that to be the case. Um, there's a whole lot more we could go into this. I mean, even the link that we have from traditions, because we have the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, almost in complete a complete New Testament in the 300s, 320s, 330s. There's a line of command that takes you back to the early church, and that line of command takes you back to the lips of the, back to Jesus Himself. It's it's phenomenal, really, to contemplate. Yeah. So what does uh what does John say about the divine nature of Jesus? 
there's a lot, but like I said, for the sake of time, uh, I'm, I'm only going to look at one thing uh, here. We, we could look at the first letter of John. There's a lot that he talks about yeah. Jesus in there. But let me just read this. So, so this is what the apostle, and I believe the apostle wrote it, but even if you believe it was the disciples of John, it would still flow from the lips of John. But anyhow, he says, In the beginning was the Word. And the word, this word is Jesus, the Lagos. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him was not one thing that was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Uh, and we go on down to verse 14. The word became flesh. That word... <laughs> that word that was God was with God in the beginning through whom everything was created. That word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. We observed his glory. Notice that we, we observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The author, no matter who you say it is, and I believe it's the Apostle John, but he adds that we word there to indicate the fact that he was an eyewitness of Jesus himself. Yeah. Yeah, and eyewitness testimony is uh is is basically is what we base the 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 resurrection on and what we base uh base a lot of the scripture on. Absolutely. Big time stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um he John goes into so much more. I think there's so much in John that uh he 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 brings so much of different pictures into into uh, into his story of what he's trying to tell. I mean, he, he he grabs. There's many places where he grabs Genesis and brings it right into right into the story and 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 says, you know, that guy that we talked about in Genesis, you know, the snake crusher, the 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 the, the one that was you know crushed the head of the serpent. That's this guy, you know. All of these pictures he brought in, or he's bringing in during this whole time, and I think it's important to pay attention to. Absolutely. So, what does uh, what does the book of Hebrews say about the divine nature of Jesus? The, here again, as you mentioned with John, there's a lot more we could say about the book of Hebrews, but just for the sake of time, just looking at chapter 1, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, personally, I believe that, in my estimation, I believe Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people believe that Luke wrote it. Some people believe Apollos wrote it. There, there are other opinions out there. Some people believe that Paul wrote it. Right. Regardless, regardless of who it might have been, that this is a person who uh, was in the early church, um, may or may not have been a witness of Jesus. We don't know. It depends on who it is. Uh, but here, here's what he says. And most likely they weren't an eyewitness of Jesus, but they were an early believer. But he goes. He, he says that this long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. Now there again we see that same thing that John yeah, said right. in John chapter one. But it gets even more interesting. Look what He says in verse three: The Son is the radiance or reflection of God's glory and the exact expression 
essence, representation, copy, or reproduction of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, this has all the earmarks of early material here. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, um, or he sat down on high at the right hand of the majesty. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. He quotes then um, that uh, Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today you've, I've become your father. Uh, what angel? Which, which of the angels, he says, did, did he ever say this? Uh, what did he ever say in Second uh, Samuel seven fourteen? I will be his father and he will be my son. Which of the firstborn in the world does he say? Let all the angels worship him, and that's quoting um, Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three. And about the angels, he says he makes his angels winds and the servants a fiery flame. But to your to the sun, he says your throne God is forever and ever, and the scepter of your ju- uh, kingdom is a scepter of judgment uh, and justice. I mean. And then he goes on and uh, uh, he quotes further passages of Scripture from there. even uh, quotes Psalm 102, 25 through 27, Psalm 110 that we just uh, read, Psalm 110, 1. Uh, but all of this he's making the connection back to the fact that the Son is the exact expression of God's nature. Mm-hmm. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that picture, that exact image, that's a picture word that's a that's a picture word that's being described of um like what like if like if a king had a had a signet ring and he put it in the wax and it was as as it would press into the wax it would you pull that away and it'd be an exact representation of what that ring had that's that's very possible i haven't the um the word is uh Tear, character, or you know, I guess we could even say that we get our modern word character from that character. Um, it and it does mean uh, there is a kerygma, a kerygma, which means a mark or a stamp. So there probably is some type of link there to that word or to that uh, hmm. to that understanding. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So when uh, when God sent Jesus. When it, when it all kind of come down, he was sending his stamp on the whole situation. And in following that, that illustration, that picture word, even more, when a king gave forth an edict which made an, something official, he would take that ring and they would put a piece of clay and he would place that ring in the clay with his imprint saying that the mm-hmm. deal has been done. So you might could even push that a little bit farther to say that if Jesus is the exact expression of the Father and he is his signet ring, so to speak, this covenant is God's seal upon humanity mm-hmm. that, that through this covenant one would come to to the Father. Yeah. Last word on the cross, it is finished. Yeah, that's right. Oof. <laughs> so, so what does Paul say uh, about the divine nature of Jesus? Well, in this passage, in this well, there's a whole lot we could say here. Let me just let me just preface that. But look, let's look at a couple of the early Christian, uh, early pre-creedal materials preserved by Paul in his letter. So first, we go to Colossians chapter one. This is an early creed, verses fifteen through twenty. 
talking about Christ. He is the image. There you go, image again. Um, this is not the same word, but this word is the uh, is called is uh, this word is icon, icon, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything here again, we see this. Everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He's before all things. By Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have uh, first place in everything. For God was pleased to have Him, uh, to have all His dwellness, fullness dwell in Him, and through Him reconcile everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on a cross. And so we also look to Philippians, uh, and we look to Philippians chapter 2. This is an early hymn. Uh, it says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had become as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in, in heaven and on earth and in under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That will preach. Boy. Amen. Yeah. So I guess you could say Paul held to pretty high Christology. <laughs> well, and and most scholars believe that what we just read did did not even originate from Paul. This is stuff that he got when he was in Jerusalem, a couple years after he or what, however the period of time was. Uh, I think it was two years after he was saved. Uh, there in Jerusalem, met with the apostles, making sure his gospel, the gospel he learned from the Lord, uh, was the same as what they were preaching as well. Hmm. So this is material that came from the early church given to Paul that he preserved. Hmm. There again, as Richard Balcom says, the highest Christology is the earliest Christology. Right. Yeah, so what evidence do we have of the humanity of Jesus? So here again, looking at just a few brief passages of Scripture, and we could obviously mention several others. We can see in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in wisdom. Uh, this also meant that even though he was God come in flesh, he had to go through the process of learning new things. Uh, he grew hungry, Matthew 4.2. He, he grew thirsty in John 19.28. And fatigued, we find in John 4.6. He suffered anxiety and stress, as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in Luke's Gospel that we learned that uh, he sweated Great drops like blood. Uh, many believe that he may have uh, been under such distress that the capillary glands, uh, capillary glands under the skin may have burst and, and may have done the thing. It's, it's a rare thing that happens, but under a great distress that has been shown to happen. Uh, he suffered death in John 19.34. In all the Gospels, we find that. He also experienced emotion in John in Mark 3.5 and Mark 10.14. 
He was surprised in Mark uh, 6, 6. He was surprised by the faith of the centurion. Uh, Luke 7, 9. Uh, you know, I believe he probably had an aspect where he knew certain things, but he still, some things surprised him. And we see in John eleven thirty three and verse 35 uh, that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, still knowing what was going to come about, he, he wept even still. So, he was very, very human. And we talk about the divinity, and that's very important. But we must understand he's also very human. Mm-hmm. You could even go into when he's when he's standing on the on the hill there and praying over Jerusalem, saying, how I wish I would have been able to take you under my wing. You know, I, I kind of wonder if that might have been a divine and a human point oh yeah well and i think that's divine in the aspect that he's 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 uh possibly even coming from the perspective of god saying how many times that god wanted to play the part of a mother hen and gather the chicks under her wings and and right. um and and likewise god he wanted to bring in israel and bring them under his wings to protect them and to and to, to have that loving relationship with them but they were not willing and so mm-hmm. Jesus exhibited great emotion. Jesus also grew angry. We see that whenever he, uh, whenever he uh, was in the temple, uh, he was angry, but he didn't sin because because he had righteous actions in overturning the tables and and doing what he did. It wasn't that he wasn't trying to hurt anyone or anything of the sort, but he was trying to break down the strongholds of oppression that had come from the early um, forms of religion plaguing. Uh, plaguing, uh, plaguing Israel. Not that Judaism did that. I'm not saying that because he was true. Judaism would be true worship of God. Uh, he was calling them back to uh, a true relationship with the Father, which had been established on Mount Sinai. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I just, I, I, I don't know how you could get away from or say that Jesus wasn't human. You, there's just so many things that, uh, um, that as you read the as you read the scriptures and and the way he interacts with people, without being having the human nature, you wouldn't react the way that he he had or or interacted with people the way he did. Um, yeah, there, there's just I just don't know how you'd have a how you'd be able to justify, um, biblically that the that Jesus wasn't um, human. So, I agree. Yeah. So, number eight, this is going to be a kind of a big one here. Um, is there a way when we go through these that we can kind of maybe um, use the modern, not only use the, the, the terms that we have here, but also maybe use maybe some of the modern of what those uh potentially look like nowadays sure absolutely um because i think we do see uh, i'm not going to say we see all of these represented in modern times but i do think that we see a good good many of them um or a good mix of them yeah and a good mixture of them that's right the, the part of the problem we have today especially in the in the protestant church and let me just preface this again by saying I am a Protestant, okay? I, I'm, I'm in the Southern Baptist denomination. I've been ordained in the Southern Baptist denomination. Um, but part of the problem we have as Protestants in certain denominations, not all, 
but in certain denominations, is that there's no oversight over churches and there's no oversight over even pastors. So sometimes we we get these wonky things in in, in church and churches, and it's more difficult to add correction in certain aspects because we don't have a an overseeing body like you have in the Greek Orthodox Church and Roman Catholic Church. You don't have this overseeing body, so to speak. Now, that can also be abused. It, it can go too far in the other direction, which is what brought about the Reformation uh, back in the, day, those, the days of the Reformation. But so it's some of these issues, what I'm trying to say, is harder to correct. That's why it's important that we as Christians, that we're able to spot out these her- heresies and identify them uh, and know true orthodoxy from the heretical versions that are springing up all over the place. Yeah, so I guess um, then what we should do is ask the question, uh, what heresies developed from a misunderstanding of the union of, in Jesus? Uh, if Jesus Jesus is human and divine and our nature. Absolutely. So, like you said, it's the union of these two these two uh, aspects of Jesus's nature, which which caused the problem. And so, from the earliest church, the the earliest church, um, well, not the earliest church. I said that wrong. Mid to late first century, um, the church had already begun to grow in different different areas all throughout the known world at that time. And some of the areas uh, were were impacted by Greek philosophy, and so uh, so there grew this this uh, this this thought process from from the works of Plato. And and let me just say, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with Plato, but as they were looking to build a Christian philosophy. Some individuals uh, adopted or weighed, leaned too heavily on Platonic thought and less on biblical understanding. And so what happened is that there, there grew out of that this movement called docetism. And, and think of the Greek word dokeo. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to, to seem or to appear. S-E-E-M, to seem or to appear. Uh, and from that came a movement even into the second century known as Gnosticism. So l- let me back up and just explain Platonic, Platonic thought. There, in Platonic thought, there were, was this understanding of, of um, I think it's called universals in particulars, or, or forms and, or essences, and, uh, and uh, the physical realm. Okay, so... In other words, the best way to think of this is Plato believed that there were these abstract objects that were identifiers of certain things that existed apart from the actual version of the thing. So imagine in your mind right now a table. We know a table would have um, a flat surface or maybe even a little raised surface, but it would be a flat surface with four legs and you sit underneath it. So you have that image of the table, and that would be the essence or form of of the table. But when, like here, I'm at a table, I can feel the table, and I feel the actualization of that form, the, the thing as it really exists in space and time. So from that, 
grew this understanding of a dichotomy of the spiritual realm and physical realm. That's not necessarily anti-Christian because Christians believe in a spiritual realm and they believe in a physical realm. But what happened was that the Gnostics and the Docetists believed that the spiritual realm was good and the physical realm was evil. And they even grew this philosophy that there were two gods, a god of the spirit realm that formed the forms and essences of all things, and a physical god, or not a physical god, but another god who formed and made the creation from the essences and forms that the good god had made. So when we talk about Jesus, the Gnostics and Docetists believed that Jesus existed, but that he was only a phantom or he was only this spiritual entity. He appeared to be a human being, but he wasn't actually physical, because how could a good being be a physical being in this worldview? So, because because they thought the the the, the flesh was bad, right? Exactly. And this yeah. actually developed into two forms of Gnosticism. One form of Gnosticism uh, believed that. Um, that, that you had to live a pure, seeking a spiritual life, and they would even believe that there were these secrets to escape the physical realm, to, 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 to be devoted into the spiritual realm. You had to learn these secrets to, to, to get out, and, to, and that salvation was based upon knowing these secrets, to even pass through these different stages of heaven by telling the secret password to the angel in charge of that realm. Um, but there's also another version of, of uh, like a hedonistic version of Gnosticism that developed, which basically said that to to um, to to free yourself from sin, then you need to sin all you can. It became very hedonistic, and it was just very odd Ooh. stuff, very bizarre stuff. <laughs> and even with the Gospel of Thomas and these Gnostic uh, Gospels, there's some there's bizarre stuff that's yeah. that's in there. Even like in the Gospel of Thomas. Um, it has this weird passage of scripture at the very end that says that Mary Magdalene was a disciple and she would have to make herself a man to be a, a disciple. Weird stuff, very odd stuff, and stuff you don't see from, from the teachings of Jesus in the canonical Gospels. So John, when he talks about, in, in, in the Gospel of John and the letters of John are, are among some of the later works in the New Testament, that's why he emphasizes having seen and felt Jesus. We saw him with our eyes. Uh, we felt see. him with our hands. He was alive. He was a human being. And that's why the emphasis John placed even in John chapter 1, the Word wow. became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah. So so are, are, you, are you kind of saying that maybe some of this, uh, some of this thought, this Gnostic thought, kind of came into play very early? In the church, then it, it actually did. It came. It came to play around the uh, mid late mid to late uh, first century, uh, and and a lot wow. of this had to do with the integration of the Christian worldview into Platonic thought, the, the thought processes mm-hmm. of the time. And so, uh, as as some people tried to integrate uh, or tried to build a Christian philosophy, that some people leaned too heavily on the Platonic thought. And uh, and and did not give adequate attention to biblical 
biblical truth, and even even Jesus as he actually existed. So they made this really weird, almost like a comic book version of Jesus. And by the way, you're talking about modern trends and what we see today. This fits fr- eerily. This is eerily reminiscent of, of some New Age philosophies that we find today. Oh, yeah. Of, of this oh, yeah. cosmic as as, Christ. Yeah, as soon as you said it, man, it was just like alarm bells going off in my head. That's all I could think of was a lot of this new age thought of, of, uh, you know, you just, uh, enter into the next realm and, and leave this one behind and just so many different things, you know, astral projection and oh yeah and all of this stuff you know it's like oh boy i can i can hear exactly what you're saying yep well and a lot of totally. these new age programs a lot of these new age philosophies they will actually advocate for a gnostic version of christianity and that's why you hear so many people say well the the reason why orthodoxy won out is because the church had the authority and then they just they pushed down the little man mm-hmm. mm. But we're going to see that some of these philosophies weren't. There was a lot of effort that went into preserve orthodoxy, as we're going to find as we move along with this. Yeah. So then, looks like Arianism is kind of the next one in this. Well, actually, I tell you what. Let's go to Apollinarianism. I don't know if I had this on on the list, uh, and and the only reason I want to deal with this next is because it talks about the human human aspect of Jesus. Um, Apollinarianism came from a, a guy by the name of Apollinarius, who was a good friend of uh, Athanasius of Alexandria. And we're going to talk about Athanasius here in just a little bit. Uh, Apollinarius, he. He, there's another word we can use. Homoousios means the same essence. Jesus was of the same essence of God. That there's another version of that that came about after it was settled, after Arianism was defeated, which is a homoi, a, a similar uh, a homoousios. So Apollinarius believed that there were two completely separate natures. He uses the word nous, uh, which in Greek means uh, mind, will, and reason. There was a human nous of Jesus, and there was a divine nous of, of Jesus, but they were two different ones, and the divine nous of Jesus overruled the human nous of Jesus. And so um, it was almost like this this divine aspect of Jesus overruled the human aspect, and they were competing against one another. Later on in 381, uh, this was uh, this viewpoint was condemned at the Council of Constantinople. Um, I don't know of any modern uh, ideologies that necessarily hold to this. There may be some, uh, but I'm just right off the top of my head. I, I don't know what would be, but, but I'm sure there's some out there if we looked hard enough. Wow. Yeah. Some people have even blamed, let me just say one more thing here. Some people have even suggested that, and I'm not suggesting one way or the other, but some people have suggested that William Lane Craig has presented a modern form of Apollinarianism. But I don't know that he would accept that necessarily, Um, but we would need to study more into that. Uh, But just Mm. just throwing it out there, I'm not saying if he does or he doesn't. I'm just saying that there are, are some people who have said that some of the things he's presented may may resemble a little bit of Apollinarianism, but I, I'll leave that to the listeners to yeah. be the judge. Yeah. Yeah, so back to the next one, there was Arianism. Yeah, so Arianism. This is going to t- this is going to look at the divine aspect of Jesus. Uh, this comes from Arius of Alexandria, 
and there this was going to be it's going to surprise you in the 300s christianity was in turmoil because you had the Athanasian version of Christianity, which was to say that Jesus was God come in flesh, but you also had another guy in, in Alexandria by the name of Arius who was saying, no, Jesus was an elevated human. Uh, he denied the deity of Jesus, but basically said that he was the first created being of, of God, he was the first created being of God, and that uh, he was kind of like an angel, so to speak. Some might say, that, but he was the first created being of God. But he really wasn't fully God. He was elevated. He was more than human, but he wasn't God come in flesh. And amazing. And I, I've got to tell you, this this erupted into a major battle. Um, Athanasius of Alexandria. He was uh, he was given the nickname the Black Dwarf because of his dark skin and, and, and very short stature, uh, he stood steadfast in his convictions that Jesus was God come in flesh. He even wrote a masterful book called On the Incarnation of the Son of God. This man, this poor man was exiled five times. Now, Arius was exiled sometimes himself as well. But Athanasius was out, exiled five times in his lifetime, uh, many times not knowing if he would survive. Believe it or not, at the Council of Nicaea, the, uh, Constantine, they didn't even talk about the New Testament. Many times people blame Constantine for selecting what books were in the New Testament. That wasn't even on the table of discussion at 325 of the Nicene Council. Constantine, who get this, Constantine himself was an Arian. He, he himself was an Arian, but he was trying to promote Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. He gave them the, their papers that they were free. They wouldn't, be they wouldn't be persecuted and condemned anymore. But he said, listen, guys, you have got to settle this issue. Now, many people believe that Constantine was, was over this proceedings, but what we see from history is that Constantine was on the side that lost. <laughs> So they convened at 325 at the Council of Nicaea, and it was judged by scriptural support, by the evidence that they had, that in fact Athanasius was right, and Arianism was condemned as a heresy from that point on. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone just just, just wholeheartedly jumped on to Athanasius' version, uh, because there was still a lot, it took a lot of time for this to, uh, to get, for this to heal and for things to get better. But what we do find is that there is a modern version of Arianism uh, well and alive in today's time, and that is known as the movement, uh, better known as the Jehovah Witness movement. And they are actually advocating a modern form of Arianism. Yeah, and even uh, Mormonism, too. Yeah, you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, and you know, just to kind of set that record the the Council of Nicaea did not canonize the scripture. The the no. canon was already being the or the canon was already being formed at 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 35, 36, 40, 70, 60 AD, all of that. It was all already formed. It, they they were just verifying which direction to go at that point, right? Yeah, so so Gary Habermas uh, suggested by by that by 110 AD, 85 percent of the of the New Testament was canon. Uh, let me say that again: by 110 AD, 
85% of the New Testament canon was already established. Mm. There were a few books in question, but 85% of it was already established. Uh, the con- the Council of Constantinople in 381, the one that also condemned Apollinarianism, is the council, if memory serves, that's the council where they established the books of the New Testament. But Oregon of Alexandria in the 200s, he already mentioned the books that were that were recognized. Uh, all, all all the books in the New Testament was it twenty seven I think uh, all the books in the New Testament he he clearly identified and then uh, Athanasius would later identify them as well even after that. Yeah, yeah. So it don't don't get don't get thrown off by think by people saying that that Constantine was the was the one that. Uh, Put all the stuff in order so he could just manipulate the church where he wanted to go. That's just a, that's just a. You could say that's just a smoke bomb that they try that people try to throw out there to get people off the off the track. Yeah, it's a modern urban legend that has no warrant in in the evidence. I mean, because I've actually read the document that came out of the Nicene Council, and there's nothing there dealing with the New Testament books. Uh, there's nothing there whatsoever. And again, history has shown that Constantine was an Arian and the, and the Council of Nicaea ruled in favor of Athanasian, Athanasius and not Arius. So there's nothing there <laughs> that, that is even remotely close to that notion, that modern notion. Yeah. Yeah. So the next one is Nestorianism. Okay, did we did I have Ebionism on there? The one I sent you? No. Okay, let me quickly mention Ebionism or Ebionism and then I'll go to the next one. Ebionism is uh it denied the ontological deity of Jesus. This actually stemmed from a Judaizing movement of early Christians. Uh, this may have been something that the book of Hebrews was even combating. Uh, but they claim that Jesus was an ordinary human being with supernatural power uh, and that uh, the divine Christ descended on Jesus at baptism. And I, and again, in, in some New Age circles, I've even heard this suggested as well. Uh, but that's Ebionism. Uh, Nestorianism came from a guy named Nestorius. Uh, he conf- it's, it's a very confusing doctrine, I'll be honest. Uh, but it basically divided the two natures of Jesus into two entities, and the, in, in the divine nature ruled over the flesh. Uh, it's very similar to, but not exactly alike, Apollinarianism. But they're very comparable uh, in in their uh, in their essence. But this was condemned by by Cyril uh, or, uh, at the uh, Council of Ephesus in AD four thirty one. Uh, again, there's a lot of philosophy or Platonic uh, thought processes going into that, uh, but it's uh, again. It's kind of a confusing, to be honest with you, it's kind of a confusing doctrine. And some people even suggest that Nestorius didn't even understand his own <laughs> belief system. <laughs> oh, man. Be careful what you write down, folks. That's right. it might come back to haunt you. <laughs> uh, so this one, it kind of looks like eucalyptus something, but it's... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that I can say it right. Eutychianism, I think, is from a guy <laughs> very close to eucalyptus. This is <laughs> this is from a guy named Eutyches. Uh, he was actually angered by the condemnation of Nestorius, 
uh, is very similar to Nestorianism, but appeared to uh, deny the uh, the natures of Christ. But here again, this was a kind of a confusing, confusing doctrine. It was very similar to Nestorianism, but there were a few tweaks. But we just simply mention it as a as a means of uh, noting that it is another one of the heresies that was later condemned in the church. Hmm. And then the next one is ad- adoptionism. Yeah, this is a belief that Jesus was born a normal human being. Now, this is very, very um, popular in more progressive circles with progressive uh, theology. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Bootman held uh, a, a viewpoint similar to adoptionism and, and many other far more liberal, progressive Christians. This belief is that Jesus was born a normal human being, but was adopted by God because of being such a righteous person, was adopted by God after his baptism. So at the baptism, he was adopted by God as, as God's appointed Messiah. Uh, so you don't see anything about pre-existence, anything of the eternal divine nature. Uh, this is this was just a guy who was a very good guy, very, very wise individual, and because of his righteousness, he was adopted by God to be the Messiah of the world. Hmm. There's a lot wrong there. <laughs> There's a whole lot wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. There's too much in Scripture that that. How could they even? How could they even defend that? Well, see, if you hold this idea, as 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 some do, that the miracles were more of like myths and things of that nature, and you and you do as Rudolf Bultmann does, demythologize the Bible, then those become more of fanciful stories, and and it allows a person to hold to Jesus being the Messiah without necessarily holding that he did all these miraculous deeds that he did. Uh, I agree, again, I don't agree with that at all. I think there's a whole lot right. wrong, but that would be how some people would get around the issue. Hmm. Yeah. It, it's funny how, you know, you look at these, and there's there's a there's a, a rhythm of, of what's coming back again and what's coming back again. and it, It's, it's kind of crazy. The last one here that we have listed... Um, is uh, kineticism? Yeah, yeah kineticism, I believe, and it comes from the the word uh, kenosis. Um, and this is a this this is a worldview that confuses the Philippians hymn, where it talks about uh, Jesus laying aside or, or or pouring out Himself. It's a belief that Christ laid aside His divine nature at the incarnation. So that he wasn't necessarily, didn't continue to be, there was an essence of him that was God, but he wasn't continuing to be God after being born at the incarnation, that he became fully human at that time. Mm. So so they would probably fall into the same, I guess, the question when when you hear people um, ask the question, well, if, if Jesus was God and he came to earth, then who's running the ship at that time? Yeah. Well, and see, I think that with the Trinitarianism, uh, you know, with 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 from classical orthodoxy, you, you can still say that the Father was still you know in heaven, and and the Son is on earth. And of course, you have the Spirit. But in this in this worldview, you have you know Jesus being divine, and then He laid aside that and became fully human, and then reassumed His 
some some may some may even say reassumed his divinity at the resurrection, or something like that. Uh, again, I so think there's could, a whole. You lot could more. almost say, you could almost say that's kind of a form of modalism, then. Yeah, I, I think you could. I, I think that that's a good good um, good perception there, Curtis. I think that is a, has a lot in common with modalism, that he ceased being God for a moment. But then he uh, became human, and then he reassumed his divine nature at the resurrection. Uh, mm. that, that's a very good insight. I think it's very, very comparable to modalism. <laughs> if you ever want to laugh, if you ever want to laugh, you gotta go. You gotta go to YouTube and look up uh, um, the. Uh, oh my! Was it Lutheran satire? Lutheran satire. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Was it, what, are, what are their names? The two redheaded guys. Pat, they always say Patrick. <laughs> Patrick. <laughs> oh, it's good stuff. YouTube, go look it up. Lutheran satire. I never laughed so hard in my life on their talk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, um, so number nine. This is the last question. How was the Christology problem, Christological problem, eventually resolved? So again, we, we come back to three twenty five. Uh, we uh, and kind of this is kind of more like a review of some things we've mentioned. Athanasius of Alexandria presented the viewpoint of uh, of of orthodoxy. You know, we would say orthodoxy, and he t- and he presented a word called homoousios, meaning the same essence that Jesus had both human and divine nature as one mm-hmm. entity, one person in Christ. Christ is of the same essence of the Father, yet he is God come in flesh. And if you really want to read a good work, you can probably find it online. Go through and read St. Athanasius's work on the incarnation of the Son of God. It's a lengthy read, um, but you can easily read it in one day. It's not so lengthy that you couldn't read it in one day. But it is really, really good. Um, it's it, it talks about the Word coming flesh and the reasoning behind you know Jesus doing this. And so, uh, but this was settled in 325 at the Nicene Council, and as we mentioned, Constantine was an Arian, and so uh, he he told the uh, he told the um, the church what you know you need to settle this, you need to find the answer, settle this thing, and they did. And it just so happens that uh, viewing the scripture, viewing the the creeds, viewing the um, all the evidence that they that they ca- they came and confirmed the um, the fact that Jesus was was in fact um, God come in flesh, and I like what mm-hmm. Norman Geisler says here you know, because many people will say, well, you know, these are early councils; these are early, early uh, settled uh, um, decrees by the church. You know, what, what should would what should Christians, Protestant Christians, accept? And he he often says, if I'm remembering this correctly. To, to accept the first three creeds in, within the uh, in the first four councils in the first five decades of the church, or not the decades, the first five centuries of the church. So the first three creeds, first four councils in the first five centuries of the church, the three, four, and five. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. Hmm. 
Well, we're going to dive deeper into more of this uh, next week, folks, and uh, just keep tuning in. And So, hey, and Curtis, like before, uh, we, before we close, why don't, why don't you give the people a little insight about what we're going to be looking into? Do you have that list with well, you? Well, I don't. Oh, okay, well, I tell you what. Let me give you a little quick preview. Didn't mean to cut you off there. So next week, we're going to talk about the virgin birth and the incarnation. The third yep. podcast, we're going to talk about early Christological titles. This is going to be a podcast you don't want to miss. Uh, the fourth one, we're going to talk about different theories and the fundamentals on the issue of atonement. Uh, the fifth one, we're going to take a look at the triple function of Christ, him, his role as, re, uh, as revelation, rule, and uh, reconciler. We're going to look at the work of Christ, and we have several things we're going to talk about from uh, humiliation, exaltation, substitution, propitiation, reconciliation, and a whole lot more. Uh, the extent of Christ's atonement, here is where we really get where the hammer hits the nail when we talk about the different soteriologies is the extent of Christ's atonement limited as the Calvinist says universal or can we look at a singular type of redemption uh, we're going to take a look at that then we're going to also talk about the resurrection of Jesus that's part of a Christology uh, then we'll talk about the ascension and intercession of Jesus why did Jesus ascend into the to the right hand of the father and then while we're not going to deal with eschatology as such we are going to talk about the fundamentals of the second coming of Christ and what that means as far as Christ's identity and um, the work that he did and is uh, is going to do. So we've got a wonderful road ahead of us, Curtis, and I can't wait to take this journey with you. You know, it's funny because I was just going to say, um, man, what a ride this is going to be. And <laughs> what's good about this is this is useful for for anybody. So if, if any of the listeners have a... Uh, have a pastor that they might think that this might be interesting for them, have them tune into this and, and start uh, following this. And you just never know. Um, you just never know what, where it's going to lead. But I will tell you when it comes to the atonement part and you kind of mentioned it, you hit on it about the Calvinists and limited atonement or, or any of those, I'll just tell you where I stand. Cause when, when when the Bible says all, it pretty much means all. <laughs> Buckle up, folks. That's going to be a good podcast. Uh, hey, can so, I say one? I'm going to say one more thing before we wrap oh, it yeah. up. I know we've gone over it's time. It's your here, deal, but. man. This is this is, <laughs> this is your this is your boat. You're floating it here. Just, just want to say one more thing here. Help us out by by if if you're whatever podcasting app you're listening to this on. Like us, like the episodes, share it, tell people about it, uh, share the different podcasts. And as Curtis was saying, you know, share this with people around you. You can even make a good Bible study out of this by having good yep. discussion questions with You're people. Really good. And so this is going to be a fun ride, and we hope that you'll take advantage of this. And uh, even leave a review. If, if it's a positive review, leave it online. If not, uh, well, then email us, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and well, and and we also have the the show notes, so you you will always have what I'm looking at when when Brian and I are 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 talking about this and going through this. You'll have all those questions, and you'll have even even some ways to be able to get the answers for that, along with just listening to the podcast. You'll be able to use it as a Bible study. I think it's great, great point, Brian. Really good point. But I want to thank you this for for spending time here with us. Um, and, and, and Bellator Christie thanks you for that. 
Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Hold your own, friends. listening to the Bellator Christi podcast brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast and bellatorchristi.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christi. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Ladies and gentlemen, from Lutheran satire, this is Donald and Connell learn that Jesus isn't divine. Okay, Patrick, so apart from this you have to call God Jehovah bit, are there any significant theological differences between us? Oh, no, nothing major. Just a couple small things. Like what? Like Jesus isn't God. Wow, you're really swinging for the fences at warmed-over Arianism <laughs> Stadium there, Patrick. Yeah, Patrick, go hell or go home, I guess. So tell us, O oh deniers of Christ's divinity, what do you make of John 1-1, which states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Actually, the correct translation is, And the Word was a God, which only proves our point. For more information, please read some of our literature. <gasps> How dare you, Patrick! What? You're talking to a couple of 5th century Irish peasants. Here. You know good and well we're both hopelessly illiterate. Yeah, Patrick, quit pamphlet shaming us. Wait, you can't read? Not a word! Now let's dive into the grammar of John 1-1 to address your terrible translation. So, in Koine Greek, there is a series of words for the definite article known in English as do. However, there is no word for the indefinite article a. On account of this, whilst translating, it's common to add the indefinite article before a noun if the definite article is missing. For example, Matthew 5:14, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Exactly, and there's no article before Theos in John 1-1c, which is why we translate that section as, and the word was a God. So clearly John is saying that Jesus wasn't the God, but was only a God. In other words, a very holy but lesser being. Except he's most clearly not saying that, Patrick, which you might have realized if you hadn't dropped out of Greek 101 after 15 seconds and ordered a power bomb the Nicene Creed. So let's dive back into the text. The text that you can't read. Yep, that's the one. Now, in Greek, (laughs) nouns have declensions, which is a fancy way of saying that nouns change a bit based on the function they serve in a sentence. For example, when the word silver is the subject of the verb in Greek, the word is argoros. When it's the object, however, it's argurion. This is boring.
Yeah, I know, Connell, but we gotta slug through this stuff to refute the Jehovah's Witnesses. Gibraltar's whippersnaps. Whatever. Now, things get a wee bit tricky on the declension front when it comes to the verb to be, which is known as a linking verb. Now, as opposed to a regular verb, which connects two completely different nouns, a linking verb connects two nouns which are essentially the same thing, such as the words I am Spartacus in the sentence I am Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. Because of this, both of the nouns joined by a linking verb will be in the nominative case, making them both look like the subject of the sentence. But in reality, one of them is the subject, and one of them is what's called the predicate nominative. This is boring! So in a language like Greek, where thanks to declensions, you don't have to place the subject before the verb to identify it as the subject, how do you figure out which word is the subject and which is the predicate nominative? By and large, the answer is this. The word that features the definite article is the subject, and the one that doesn't is the predicate nominative. So, Patrick, and John 1-1-C. What's the verb? Was. Exactly, a linking verb. And what two nominative case nouns does that verb link together? God and word? Precisely. And which of those two nouns has the definite article? Word. Which means that's your subject. So the reason John doesn't include the definite article with God in 1-1-C is because that's how you say the word was God in Greek instead of saying God was the word. Ergo, John is emphasizing the divinity of Jesus here, not denying it. Okay, but that's not like a universal rule of Greek grammar. No, it's not, but since lesser gods is a concept completely at odds with every syllable of the Bible, and since Jesus is clearly identified as God in John 20, Colossians 2, Matthew 1, and Titus 2, to name a few examples, it would be absurd to translate this text in such a way as to indicate that Jesus is stuck running resurrection picket rolls on the junior varsity God squad. Yeah. Ah, Patrick, even the simplest of readers can perceive the hilarious hugeness of your heresy here. But you can't read. That's correct. So you couldn't tell me what this is? Nope. Or this? No idea. How about this? Well, if I had to guess, I'd say it's Ryland's Library Papyrus P52, the earliest known copy of John's Gospel with a section at chapter 18, verses 31 to 33 on the front and verses 37 to 38 on the back. Either that or a book about Harriet the Moo Cow. Yeah, it's anybody's guess. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com.